Greetings. Welcome to the Moab Festival of Science Geology Podcast Tour. I'm Terry Dial, and will be acting as your intermittent host of today's Geo Tour. Thanks for joining as we tune in to local geologist Chris Benson, who will be guiding us on a scenic driving tour of this red rock landscape. Along the drive, Chris will have a stop at six preset sites to highlight some or many aspects of the amazing rock features observable from that point. You can identify the location of each stop on your GeoTour map, which is embedded in the Moab Festival of Science website, or by resetting your odometer as you drive north out of town up the 191. At the end of a segment, Chris will provide good directions to the next stop. We'll then go ahead and play about 30 seconds of tunes before launching back into the commentary for the following site. This way, when you hear the music, you have a comfortable amount of time to pause the recording and drive to the next stop. When you arrive at the subsequent site, simply resume playing the podcast and Chris will chime back in, delivering a rock lover's insider look at how Mother Earth laid down, folded, faulted, and then slice straight through these ancient layers of rusty red, sandy white, and sea foam green strata. Let's turn it over to Chris. Thanks for tuning in to the Moab Festival of Science Virtual Geology Tour. My name is Chris Benson and I'm stoked to highlight some interesting aspects of the geology of the Moab area during a roughly three hour driving tour. Over the course of about 50 miles, most of which is on pavement, you will see almost every rock layer in the Moab area, geological points of interest, and maybe a new or refined appreciation for the world class geology Moab has to offer. We will be heading up Highway 313 and then down Long Canyon, which is on BLM administered land. In other words, no park fees or waiting lines. Four-wheel drive is recommended for this, but only for the loop option going down Long Canyon. Otherwise, two-wheel drive is fine. Each stop will focus on the story we can read in the rocks. With that in mind, please drive safe and only utilize the podcast while you are stopped in a safe area. Mileages start from the intersection of Center and Main in downtown Moab. Okay, folks, there's the music. Go ahead and pause the podcast now, and we'll see you a few miles up the road at Courthouse Wash Parking Area. Stop 1. Courthouse Wash Parking Area and Highway 191, Mile 3.2. Here we are, near the confluence of Courthouse Wash and the Colorado River on the beautiful Colorado Plateau, whose red rocks and dramatic scenery attract people from all over the world. Many people are interested in geology, but few are brave enough to grapple with the mind-bending timescales and large-scale processes in order to really understand the story told by the rocks. This loop will give you a solid introduction to Moab's geology, or perhaps, if you're already familiar with the basics, will help solidify 
what you already know. To start off, let's take a second to look around. You probably noticed the large rock walls of orange-red sandstone, perhaps the distant gray peaks of the Sierra La Salle. It's easy to get the sense that this landscape provides a deep, piercing view through time. But before I go any further, I wanted to say that each culture has its own way of looking at the world and explaining history. The talented artists who painted intricate images nearby in Courthouse Wash several thousand years ago had a worldview shaped by their experiences and their technology. Today, our understanding benefits from several generations of scientists and huge technological advances. And at its core, geology is largely the practice of combining observations and ideas to make inferences of events and processes that have occurred in Earth's past. In order to do so, geologists observe modern phenomena, for instance, ripples that form on tidal flats, or maybe crossbeds and sand on a river beach. These modern sedimentary structures are analogous to ripple marks and crossbeds we can observe in the rock record. These observations help us understand what might have occurred in Earth's past. Sedimentary rocks are particularly interesting because they record the environment in which they were deposited in. The Moab area displays an array of rock layers that tell an interesting story that continues today. To start off, let's take a step back and remember that the Earth is 4.6 billion, yes, billion with a B, years old. We don't know much about early Earth, except that it was molten, lacked an atmosphere, and generally wasn't a great place to be. Sort of like Moab in July. Just kidding. Let's fast forward to about 1 billion, or if you prefer, 1,000 million years ago. If you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, you might remember learning that there are some very old rocks in the bottom of that big ditch. These rocks are known as the Grand Canyon Supergroup and tell of shallow seas and even volcanoes and are probably some of the oldest sedimentary rocks on the entire Colorado Plateau. While this name sounds like an 80s cover band from Flagstaff, the Grand Canyon Supergroup actually gives a rare insight into Earth's history one billion years ago. In comparison, rocks exposed in the Moab area are much younger and are around 300 million years old. We are not exactly sure which rock layers are buried deep beneath the Moab area, but it's probably reasonable to envision many of the familiar rock layers of the Grand Canyon buried thousands of feet below. So, in a way, with some overlap, where the Grand Canyon sort of stops, the Moab geologic record begins. Near Moab, the oldest sedimentary rocks are called the Paradox Formation and were deposited about 320 million years ago, MYA, during what we call the Pennsylvanian period. It is a little difficult to see the Paradox Formation in this area, but we will see more of it later in the tour. You might be able to spot some exposures in the low hills to the south, near where the Colorado River begins to cut through what's known as the portal. There are also some outcrops along Highway 191 near the north end of Moab. Be sure to look for these the next time you are there, and try to avoid building your house or maybe a giant hotel on these rocks. I'll tell you why now. The Paradox Formation is basically a mixture of halite, which is table salt, gypsum, you know the stuff uh, drywall is made out of, potash, which is a potassium salt used as fertilizer, and shale, which is a fine-grained sedimentary rock. It forms gray-colored, badland-like hills, and just like table salt, is easily dissolved and carried away by water. You get the idea. Speaking of water, what was going on 320 million years ago to leave behind these salt deposits? Well, actually, I'm glad you asked. 
A supercontinent called Pangaea connected all of the continents. Imagine a giant swath of land that stretched from north to south, with a large area centered on the South Pole. Some of the collisions from this continental coalescence created mountain ranges, one of them being the ancestral Rocky Mountains, which trended northwest along much of modern-day western Colorado. We'll see remnants of this ancient range at our next stop, but for now, just imagine a large mountain range that was located in a similar location to the modern Rocky Mountains. This large range had an adjacent basin known as the Paradox Basin. During times of high sea level, water would infiltrate into the relatively shallow, restricted basin. Periodically, Earth experienced glacial cycles due to variation in Earth's orbit and the large amount of high-latitude land. During these glacial cycles, sea level would drop as more water was locked up as ice at the poles rather than water in the ocean. As sea levels dropped, water was left behind to evaporate, concentrating in salt deposits. Over time, these grew to be thousands of feet thick. Subsequently, when sea levels were consistently higher, limestone was deposited as the calcium-bearing parts of various creatures dropped to the ocean floor. So, in summary, about 320 million years ago, a wobbling, sometimes icy earth caused sea levels to fluctuate in the Paradox Basin, leaving behind thousands of feet of salt that was then covered by limestone as sea levels rose. After deposition of the Paradox Formation, other sediments began to bury these salt deposits. We will see these rocks in a bit, but for now, I want to point out what happened to the Paradox when it became buried. The halite in the Paradox Formation has very low density. Almost as soon as it gets buried, it has positive buoyancy, that is, the rocks and sediments above it are much denser than the salt deposits below. This caused the Paradox Formation to act like toothpaste. It sort of oozed upwards where it could find cracks and ways to work its way towards the surface. As the salt moved upward, it bent the overlying rocks into domes and arch-shaped structures called anticlines. This intrusive process is called diapirism. So, the next time you're at a party, you can impress your friends with your detailed knowledge of salt diapirism. If you look at the rock layers near Highway 191 Bridge that crosses the Colorado River, you can observe that they are tilted down to the left ever so slightly. If you look downstream at the portal, you will see rock layers tilting ever so slightly to the right. When you are looking southeast along the axis of the Moab Spanish Valley, you are actually looking at the middle of a collapsed salt dome. Imagine a large keystone-like wedge of rock that would have connected the valley walls. This keystone has essentially dropped into the subsurface, forming the modern-day Moab Spanish Valley. This is known as a collapsed salt anticline valley, and there are several other large valleys in the Moab region with basically the same story. But how does this actually occur? The Colorado River has been relentlessly eroding the rocks of the Colorado Plateau for several million years maybe even longer. As the river cuts through myriad rock layers, it eventually encountered the salts of the Paradox Formation. These salts are easily dissolvable and transported, leaving cavities and unsupported strata above. This is a key point. Rather than water alone carving the Moab Spanish Valley, it is the dissolution of the salt and subsequent collapsing that has led to the modern topography of the Moab Spanish Valley. In fact, this is where the Paradox Formation gets its name from. Early explorers recognized this strange topographic phenomena and named a similar valley over in Colorado, the Paradox Valley, because the Dolores River paradoxically crosses a large valley and seems to have little to do with the carving of it. As I mentioned, after the Paradox Formation was deposited, 
a large package of red rocks was in place during the Permian and Triassic periods, that is, for about the next 100 million years or so. You can see these red rocks along the base and flanks of the Moab Spanish Valley, and we will discuss these slope-forming red-colored rocks in more detail. But for now, let's concentrate on the uppermost slopes. These slopes consist of roughly 225 million-year-old Triassic Chinle formation. The Chinle is well known for its abundance of petrified wood and is a very important rock layer on the Colorado Plateau because it is one of two main formations in which the majority of uranium occurs. This naturally occurring element is concentrated in some portions of the Chinle, typically in a sandstone near the base of the formation. If you look to the west, you will see a large area of tailings. These are what remains of the Moab mill. This mill processed uranium ore from the surrounding region from the 1950s until 1984 when it closed. It is currently operated by the DOE and a major effort is underway to relocate these, oh, about 10.8 million tons of radioactive tailings to an alternate location, further away from the Colorado River. Probably a good idea, as this water supports nearly 40 million, or 12% of the population of the United States. For our next stop, we will drive north up Highway 191 for about 8 miles, and then turn left on Highway 313. Our next stop is a rest area on the right about half a mile after turning left on the Highway 313. Look for a small paved parking area with a sign that says Cliffline Viewpoint. As you climb the hill out of the Moab Spanish Valley, on your right you will see the dramatic entrance to Arches National Park. These rocks consist of the Jurassic Entrada Formation, which we will discuss later on the tour. Stop 2, Highway 313 at Cliffline Viewpoint, mile 11.7. Welcome to Seven Mile Canyon. At our last stop, we discussed the deposition of the Paradox Formation some 320 million years ago. We began to understand how these salts continue to shape the landscape today. Here, in Seven Mile Canyon, we can observe excellent rock exposures that give us insight into the next chapter of Moab's geologic history. A major change occurred around 290 million years ago, during the Permian period. Instead of a marine setting, the Moab area transitioned into a dominantly terrestrial environment. In the battle between the mountains and the sea, the mountains began to win during the deposition of the striking red-brown cliff and slope forming Cutler Formation. You can see these rocks making up the lower slopes near the rest area. The Cutler Formation consists of sandstone, siltstone, and even conglomerate. The bulk of these rocks were deposited by rivers draining the ancestral Rockies to the east. Go ahead and look to the east. You can see the broad, uncompagrated plateau. It's not too hard to imagine this modern topographic high as the core of the ancestral Rocky Mountains. You know, we have a saying in geology, stay high, Keep moving and look for joints. No, wait, uh, that's not the right saying. Excuse me. It is that old faults never die. 
Structural features like mountain ranges tend to recur in the same places throughout Earth's history, which makes sense. Areas of broken or fractured rock continue to deform and accommodate the various stresses imposed by tectonic plates, etc. If you've ever floated through Westwater Canyon, or maybe driven through Unwip Canyon, you have seen the dark-colored metamorphic and igneous rocks that make up the core of the ancestral Rockies. Between these rivers draining the ancestral Rockies, there appears to have been dune fields. Excellent exposures of these aeolian, or wind-deposited sandstones, display what's known as cross-stratification. Look for these in the orange cliff bands near the base of the slope. Cross-stratification looks like diagonal striations that parallel each other. These record the lee face of a dune, and geologists can actually use these to estimate the direction of the wind. In this case, the majority of the cross-bedding indicates predominant winds from the northwest. Above the cutler, you might notice many areas consist of steep slopes and cliff bands that vary between yellow, orange, reddish-brown in color, maybe even a little green in there. These rocks extend all the way to the base of the vertical orange-colored sandstone. These slopes consist of the roughly 250 million year old Mongkopi and Chinle formations. The Mongkopi and Chinle consist predominantly of siltstones, shales, and sandstones. In a nutshell, the Mongkopi records a tidal environment with expansive mudflats that covered the river and dune deposits of the Cutler Formation as the sea encroached from the northwest during a relatively quiescent time. Subsequently, the Chinle was deposited by large, northwest-flowing river systems with abundant, large lakes. During Chinle time, a chain of mountains and volcanoes, not unlike the modern-day Andes, was located to the west and southwest. Volcanic ash was deposited in lakes of the Chinle, and over time, this ash has been chemically altered and leads to some of the beautiful coloration we can observe today. The large sandstone cliff above the Chinle is composed of the 205 million year old Jurassic Wingate sandstone, and the sharp contact between the rock layers suggests a major period of erosion. In stratigraphy, these are called unconformities, and can span from thousands of years to millions of years. In particular, this is referred to as the J0 unconformity and represents a regional erosion event that may have lasted around 7 to 10 million years. After this erosion event, the Wingate was deposited in a large dune field, as evidenced by its wide range, its uniform grain size, its high percentage of sand, and large-scale cross-bedding. You might be wondering what would cause such a transition, that is, from lazy rivers to a hyper-arid desert. As you might imagine, it represents a major change in the Earth's paleoenvironment. The transition from the relatively humid Triassic period to the hyper-arid environment of the early Jurassic could be related to the Triassic-Jurassic extinction event. This event is one of many mass extinction events that have profoundly altered life on Earth. For example, it is estimated that 76% of all marine and terrestrial species disappeared. The mechanism for these changes is up for debate. But one idea contends that the development of a large volcanic province associated with the breakup of Pangaea was responsible for generating an immense amount of CO2, leading to greenhouse warming and ocean acidification, you know the rest. Perhaps this global climate change caused the Colorado Plateau to become more arid. Turns out, sometimes the biggest stories are found in between the rocks. As you look back to the east, 
you might notice that the area becomes much more open. What gives? Why do the cliffs that parallel Highway 191 just sort of stop? Well, the reason the landscape is so expansive in this area is that we are actually located on the Moab Fault. A fault is an area in the Earth's crust where rocks have been fractured and moved past each other. In this case, the fault roughly parallels the railroad tracks and a substantial amount of movement has occurred here. The area on the east side of the tracks has moved down relative to the area you are standing in. In fact, there is probably close to 3,000 feet of throw across the Moab Fault in this location. To give you a better idea of what I'm talking about, look at the top of the sandstone cliffs you can see to the south. This mesa is capped by the Cayenta Formation. The same rock layer is roughly 1,300 feet below the surface, just to the east of the railroad tracks across the Moab Fault. It's no coincidence that the old Spanish Trail and modern Highway 191 parallel the Moab Fault. In fact, roads and trails often utilize faults because they offset resistant rock layers, like the Wingate Sandstone, and provide a means of passage because faults break down rocks and often form canyons and drainages. Faults can also influence groundwater and need to be considered when drilling water wells. Unfortunately, sometimes wells located near faults can have very mineralized water, making them basically unusable. A good place to see the Moab Fault is by looking to the northwest. You might have to get up a little bit higher or walk east along Highway 313 towards the railroad tracks to see this. You will notice that the sandstone cliffs of the Glen Canyon Group abruptly contact a striking blue-colored slope. What you are looking at is a sloping plain, probably about 60 degrees in steepness, in which the right side has moved down relative to the left side. The blue-colored rocks consist of the 150 million-year-old Jurassic Morrison Formation, and stratigraphically should be almost 2,000 feet higher than their current position. You might be wondering, what caused the Moab Fault to occur, and if it's related to the Moab Spanish Valley collapsed salt anticline? Well, the two processes are related. Remember the analogy of the drop keystone in the middle of the Moab Spanish Valley? Well, the Moab Fault is basically a rupture zone in the Earth's surface that has allowed the center of the collapsed salt anticline valley to drop down. Cool stuff. Hopefully the next time you head north on Highway 191, you'll have some stuff to look at. As you drive west on Highway 313 towards our next stop, we will drive up section and you will probably notice climbing through the Glen Canyon Group. As you drive up the canyon, you'll probably notice the vertical walls of the Wingate Sandstone. Eventually, you'll reach the switchbacks, which are located in the Cayenta Formation. Above the switchbacks, you'll start to get a sense for the Navajo Sandstone, which typically weathers into large domes. You're going to take Highway 313 about 4 miles and just after winding your way up through these switchbacks, you'll turn to the right uh, into a view area with the parking lot. Stop 3. 
view area above the switchbacks of Highway 313, mile 15.5. Take a short walk to the north to get a view of Seven Mile Canyon. We drove up through the sandstones of the Glen Canyon group, and by the way, a geologic group is just a collection of geologic formations. The Glen Canyon group is Jurassic in age, or about 200 million years old. The Glen Canyon group consists almost entirely of sandstone and has three formations from bottom to top, the Wingate, the Cayenta, and the Navajo sandstone. We saw the Wingate at our last stop. It tends to form very steep cliffs and is a favorite of rock climbers. The Cayenta formation tends to be much more ledgy and often forms slopes or benches. This is really handy to know if you ever find yourself route finding in the canyon country. You can actually see that the switchbacks of Highway 313 are located in the Cayenta. You can notice that instead of the thick layers of cross-bedded sandstone, the Cayenta has abundant, relatively thin, often lens-shaped sandstones with occasional red shale beds in between. The Cayenta is thought to represent a wetter period in which northwest flowing rivers sort of rework the top of the Wingate sands. After this brief reprieve, hyper-arid conditions prevailed during the deposition of the Navajo sandstone. The Navajo sandstone forms large, smooth domes and is usually a bit lighter in color compared with the Wingate. Immediately to the west, a nice exposure of large-scale cross-stratification can be observed, again, representing the leaf face of a sand dune. The Navajo sandstone records the largest dune field in Earth's history. Think modern-day Sahara Desert with towering dunes and relentless winds. This erg, E-R-G, as they are called, would have covered a large portion of modern-day Utah, Arizona, and parts of Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Nevada. Looking north, you can see striking cliffs of dark red sandstone that make up Monitor and Merrimack Buttes. These buttes consist of the slick rock member of the Entrada Formation. Much like the underlying Glen Canyon group, the Entrada was deposited in arid conditions. However, there is some evidence of a brief pause in aridity around 175 million years ago. You might notice some thinner wavy layers below the Entrada sandstone. This is the Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel Formation, and it consists of siltstone and mudstone. A shallow sea, called the Sundance Sea, was located to the northwest and is responsible for depositing various mudstones and evaporites that are found west of Moab in areas like the San Rafael Swell or even in Capitol Reef National Park. While there was some influence of this in the Moab area, Aeolian dunes dominate the rock record for this period of time. The contorted bedding of the Dewey Bridge has some interesting ideas associated with it. One idea contends that these rocks represent a shallow environment where periodically seawater would be stranded and left to evaporate, leaving gypsum and other salts behind. Potentially, these beds could have become contorted during dewatering as a result of the overlying pressure from other sediments. Another explanation for these wavy beds relates to upheaval dome in Canyonlands National Park. Some scientists think this dome could have been caused by a meteorite impact. The wavy beds in the Dewey Bridge resulted from the shock waves of this tremendous impact. Around 150 million years ago, the harsh conditions that formed the sands of the Navajo, Cayenta, and Wingate changed. We can see this in the uppermost slopes of the mesa to the northwest, as they consist of the Jurassic-Morrison formation. This formation has two main members, 
the lower salt wash member, and the overlying brushy basin member. In this location, the brushy basin has been eroded, but you can observe it near Dalton Wells and Highway 191. The salt wash member tells of northeast flowing rivers, draining yet another incarnation of an ancestral mountain range called the Nevada Neurogeny. This mountain building, much like during the Triassic, contained widespread volcanism. Volcanic ash was deposited in the still waters of the brushy basin member. Sort of like the Chin Li, this is what gives it its extraordinary colors. As you might know, the Morrison Formation is one of the most prolific layers for finding dinosaur fossils. It's well exposed near Dalton Wells. Go check it out sometime. Our next stop is another four miles up Highway 313. Turn left at the sign for Plateau Viewpoint. Stop 4. Intersection of Highway 313 and BLM 137 at Plateau Viewpoint. Mile 19.4. Welcome to Plateau Viewpoint. Rocks that are younger than the Entrada and Morrison formations are somewhat hard to see from this vantage, but you might be able to envision the vast yellow-brown badlands adjacent to Interstate 70. These badlands are formed by the Cretaceous Mancus Shale a 2,000-foot deposit of shale that records the last time the Moab area was inundated by an ocean. You can see a portion of the Manca Shale in the lower reaches of the book cliffs to the north. The Manca Shale was deposited in something called the Western Interior Seaway between 144 and 66 million years ago. You might be wondering about such a dramatic change from dune fields to deep oceans, but consider this. During the Cretaceous, the landmass Pangaea was still in the process of breaking up. The North American plate was gradually moving northward from its equatorial position to around 30 to 60 degrees north latitude. Globally, sea levels were high. It's estimated that one-third of all landmass today was inundated. Isotope data from fossil shells and Cretaceous rocks suggest warmer temperatures, temperatures that were 15 degrees warmer than modern for similar latitudes. Additional evidence from ocean sediments suggests that global CO2 levels were over 1,000 parts per million. Compare that with currently around 400 parts per million and 280 parts per million during the pre-industrial period. Well, if you ever wish that Moab was closer to the ocean, maybe just wait a while. But wait a minute, how did ocean sediments on the Colorado Plateau rise to nearly 5,000 feet above current sea level? We know that the Colorado Plateau must have been near sea level during the deposition of the Manca Shale, some 66 million years ago. But one of the great mysteries of the Colorado Plateau is how and when it was uplifted. Somewhat counterintuitively, the LaSalle Mountains have some clues about what may have happened. Take a look to the southeast. The LaSalles reach elevations of almost 13,000 feet and consist of a very different type of rock than we've been discussing so far. In fact, many mountain ranges of the Colorado Plateau and western Colorado are the result of an intense period of magmatism that occurred between 40 and 30 million years ago, 
This produced igneous rocks like diorite and basalt. The LaSalle's contain diorite. Think of a darker flavor of granite in what is referred to as a lacolith. Imagine molten magma rising from the Earth's mantle, slowly flowing upwards into a variety of host rocks by pushing, squeezing, and sometimes bending and breaking the overlying strata. Lacoliths are sort of like the plumbing of a volcano, and they contain rocks that never quite made it to the Earth's surface. You might ask, could there have been a volcano above the LaSalle's? Well, perhaps, but the evidence has long since been removed. The Abajos, the Henrys, Sleeping Ute, and Navajo Mountain are all lacoliths. By looking at these rocks, geologists can use various geochronological techniques using the principle of radioactive decay to understand when the rock cooled from a melt. Rocks from the LaSalle's have been dated to around 30 million years old. Furthermore, the size of the crystals in these rocks suggests that they cooled over a great deal of time. Otherwise, they would have cooled rapidly or essentially froze in a manner similar to obsidian or basalt. This requires that the LaSalle's cooled slowly at depth, and reconstructing the rock layers that have been stripped away from the LaSalle's due to erosion suggests a burial depth of nearly 18,000 feet. Wow, that's a lot of rock. More on this later. You might ask, what's with all this magmatism around 30 million years ago? Is it related to the uplift of the plateau? Well, good question. Plate tectonics is a grand unifying theory for geology, sort of like evolution is for biology. There is good agreement that around 60 million years ago, a collision of tectonic plates in western North America led to the uplift of the modern-day Rocky Mountains. Some of this compressional force could have pushed the Colorado Plateau up as well. Around 30 million years ago, a major change occurred in western North America. The relative motion of the plates changed from compression to more of a side slip. You might know about this side slip motion already. This tectonic boundary is known as the San Andreas Fault. Anyways, this change would have relaxed the compression forces on the underlying plate and caused it to sort of sink or founder into the underlying mantle, which may have triggered a wave of magnetism that includes large volcanic centers in the San Juan Mountains, as well as basalt capped mesas characteristic of the Fish Lake Plateau to the west. This mechanism would also explain the dotting of lacoliths across the Colorado Plateau. Whew, that was a lot of info. Let's summarize it. Igneous rocks across the plateau are related to a tectonic shift around 30 million years ago. These rocks also suggest that nearly 20,000 feet of overlying rocks have been eroded from the Canyonlands region. Well, to understand how this may have occurred, let's go take a look at the Colorado River. Continue south along Highway 313 for about 6 miles and turn left at the sign for Dead Horse State Park. The mileage from Moab is 25.5 miles for this turn. This is a continuation of Highway 313. You will drive east for about 1.5 miles and then you'll take a slight left onto the Long Canyon Road. This dirt road heads east for about 3 miles before reaching the rim of Long Canyon. Caution! Do not descend Long Canyon without a high clearance 4 wheel drive vehicle. An alternate option, if you have a low clearance vehicle, instead of going to the top of Long Canyon, you could continue on Highway 313 and go to Dead Horse State Park. You can proceed to stop 6A on the podcast. You will need to purchase a State Parks Pass in order to enter.
Stop 5, top of Long Canyon, mile 30.3. Find a spot to pull over before the road starts to descend into Long Canyon via the switchbacks. Take a short walk east towards the rim, taking care to use durable rock and avoid sensitive soils. The large chocolate cliffs below are, of course, the Wingate Sandstone. You are standing on the Cayenta Formation, which often forms a durable cap rock over the Wingate. Looking down Long Canyon, you can also see nice exposures of the Chinle, Moenkopi, and even a bit of the Cutler Formation in the lowest portions of the canyon. You are probably noticing the striking fins in the Behind the Rocks area immediately to the east. These fins consist primarily of the Navajo sandstone and are a common feature on the flanks of the Moab Spanish Valley Collapse Salt Anticline. If you look closely, you will notice that rock layers in Long Canyon dip towards the Colorado River. In fact, if you were to measure the steepness of this dip, it would be around 6 or 7 degrees. The contact between the Chinle and the Wingate can be seen to dive towards the river and is actually at river level where Long Canyon drains into the Colorado. The reason for this is here at the top of Long Canyon, we are very close to the axis of the Cane Creek Anticline. Remember, anticlines are structural features in the Earth's crust where once flat-lying rock layers have been deformed into a dome or an arch with two opposing planes and are tilted away from each other. Just sort of imagine the curve of an arch if that helps. You can also observe that the rock layers appear to rise back up again over towards the Moab Spanish Valley. This is the southwest flank of the Moab Spanish Valley Collapsed Salt Anticline. Between two anticlines, there is usually a syncline. A syncline is shaped like a U. In this case, it is called the King's Bottom Syncline. These structural features are important for several reasons. Anticlines have long been recognized as places where natural resources accumulate. Perhaps you noticed some of the well pads and drilling equipment as you drove along the mesa top. These wells are pumping oil and natural gas from the Paradox Formation we discussed earlier. In addition to salt deposits, the Paradox Formation contains organic-rich shale layers that are an important hydrocarbon resource. In fact, one well in the Big Fly area near Dead Horse Point was the number one producing domestic well in 2012. While much controversy and uncertainty exists for the future of Moab's economy, natural resources and recreational opportunities have been heavily influenced by the area's unique geology. Caution! Driving below the rim requires four-wheel drive and can be quite rough. Avoid driving down this road if it is wet or rained in the last few days. Be sure to take a look at the upper portion of the switchback going down into Long Canyon to check the condition of the road or for any uphill traffic before continuing down. There are some exposed spots and tight switchbacks. No trailers. If you're in a two-wheel drive vehicle, you can backtrack to 313 and check out Dead Horse Point for a final stop. As you make your way down Long Canyon Road, you'll get to see, up close and personal, some of the sedimentary structures contained in the different rock units we've been discussing today. Once you reach the river road, Turn right and go about 1.8 miles. Find a place to pull over across from the potash plant.
Stop 6 near the Potash Mine in the Colorado River. Mile 37. Look for a spot to pull over on the east side of the road near the Potash Mine. You may have noticed some distinctly white piles near the mine. These piles are the salts of the Paradox Formation. This mine was originally built by the Texas Gulf Sulphur Company in the early 1960s and is now operated by Intrepid Potash. It is estimated that in the Cane Creek Anticline alone, there are some 1.1 billion tons of potash in place. The term potash includes various salts that contain potassium in water-soluble forms, such as potassium carbonate, potassium chloride, potassium sulfate, and potassium nitrate. Potash is used worldwide as a plant fertilizer and is the third major constituent after nitrogen and phosphorus. The mine initially planned on the conventional method of room and pillar mining, which required dangerous operations thousands of feet down. A tragic accident occurred in 1964, when a methane explosion killed 18 workers and trapped five others, causing the mine to switch to solution mining in 1970. Currently, an injection well uses water from the Colorado River and injects water into one of the layers within the Paradox Formation. This water then dissolves the underlying salt and is extracted with another well into the evaporation ponds. After drying, the potash is taken by rail car for further processing and eventually to market. Besides actually seeing the salt behind the stories, one of the really cool things about this spot is that we can gain insight into the age of the Colorado River Canyon. So logically, the canyon must be younger than the rocks that make up its walls, but how young is this canyon? One way we can understand this is by looking at gravel deposits left by the Colorado River. A talented graduate student at Utah State named Michael Turley did just that. If you look to the east across the river, you will see peculiarly flat-topped mesas composed of well-rounded, gray-colored rocks. Turley dated these deposits to estimate when the river was at that specific elevation. In this case, these gravels are roughly 100,000 to 150,000 years old. This means that on average, over the last 150,000 years, the Colorado has carved down around 150 feet. If we were to extrapolate that over longer time periods, this is fairly close to the average rate of incision we see across the Colorado Plateau. While we don't know exactly how old these canyons are, most geologists agree that the modern topography of the Colorado Plateau formed over the last 7 million years or so. So, imagine the powerful, relentless Colorado River carving its canyons at a rate of about 300 feet to 1,000 feet per million years. At times, this downcutting was probably faster, but just for fun, imagine drawing a line on a piece of paper with a ballpoint pen. That thickness represents the average erosion for a given year. This sort of brings new meaning to the idea that good things take time. Another cool feature of this location is the valley to the east. It circumscribes a large butte and is known as Jackson Hole. It is a classic example of an abandoned meander. And at one time, probably sometime before 128,000 years ago, the Colorado River was higher and carved a sinuous path around Jackson Hole. Then, sometime after that, the river sort of took a shortcut and abandoned the Rincon of Jackson Hole. The timing and story of Jackson Hole is interesting, but one finding from the study is extraordinarily interesting. If you look to the south, you can see tilted rocks that comprise the northeast limb of the Cane Creek Anticline, sort of over there by the potash boat ramp. They are a little tricky to see from here, 
but there are many additional gravel deposits mantling the core of the Cane Creek anticline. The funny thing is, they are a little bit older than the gravels in Jackson Hole Rincon, so they're about 200,000 years old, but they're almost twice as high above the Colorado River. What could cause these perch gravels to be so much higher above the river? Well, if there's been a theme to our tour today, it is, well, you guessed it, salt. One explanation is that these gravels are actively being pushed upward by the salt movement in the core of the Cane Creek Anticline, pushing them up further than the gravels of the same age in the areas upstream of the anticline. This apparent incision rate is one of the fastest documented rates for the entire plateau and provides strong evidence that the salts of the Paradox Formation continue to influence Moab's geology. Okay folks, this has been a fun outing. We've covered some ground both intellectually and physically, and it's probably time we start thinking about heading home. On your 20 mile drive back to the north along State Route 279 and Highway 191, you will enjoy some nice exposures of the rocks we have been discussing. Try and test yourself by keeping track of which layer is which. You might also enjoy taking a brief stop near the portal to have another look at the Moab Spanish Valley with your renewed and refined understanding of the processes at work. I hope that our time together has helped you understand a little more about Moab's geology. In addition to the practical applications and intellectual understanding, I personally think the long view of geologic time can help us remember to be present as well as more patient. Remember that change is the only constant, and to quote from the book Siddhartha, Gentleness is stronger than severity. Water is stronger than rock. Love is stronger than force. Thanks for tuning in. Wow, Chris. That was great. Thank you for those stories on the rich geologic history of this place and a most spectacular drive. Hope you do another geo tour next year. And that concludes our tour today as part of the 2020 Moab Festival of Science. Thank you all for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of the festival and the remainder of your time in Moab. A special thanks to Christina Young for hosting this podcast on sciencemoab.org. Check out all the Science Moab podcasts to learn more about all the awesome work being performed in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. A hearty thank you to Brett Tobolsky and Jared Savecchia for their original and excellent tune, Intermittent Flight. Final thanks to the organizers and supporters of the Moab Festival of Science. To Sasha Reed, the Festival Grand Poobah, Erica Geiger for managing and organizing the event, and to Stacey Hamburg for designing and posting this content on the festival website. Rock on, everyone. See you next time.
Thank you.